Mark your calendars! The ADCES 24 Annual Conference parades into New Orleans August 9-12, through 12, 2024. Registration opens March 26, but you can start planning your trip now. Get ready to seize opportunities to connect, learn, and optimize your diabetes care and education practice. Stay tuned for updates at ADCES24.org. Hello, and welcome to ADCES's podcast, The Huddle, conversations with the diabetes care team. In each episode, we speak with guests from across the diabetes care space to bring you perspectives, issues, and updates that elevate your role, inform your practice, and ignite your passion. I'm your host, Kirsten Yale, the Research Manager at the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists. 100 years ago, Frederick Banting and Charles Best purified the pancreatic extract that today we call insulin. The discovery won them the Nobel Prize in Medicine, and for good reason, as the discovery of insulin has saved the lives of millions of people with diabetes and improved the lives of many others. While we've seen innovation and technology improve insulin and its administration over the last century, people sometimes remain reluctant to use insulin for a variety of reasons. In this episode, Kelly Rawlings, advocate, and Jane K. Dickinson, diabetes care and education specialist, who both live with diabetes and take insulin themselves, join us in a candid discussion around common reasons why someone in your practice might be resistant to taking insulin and what you can do to help. Kelly and Jane, welcome to the huddle. Great to be here, Kirsten. Hello, Jane. I'm excited. I've got some insulin on board and I'm all prepped and ready for this great conversation today. All right. Well, I am so excited to have you guys here. First, I should say to celebrate the 100 years of insulin. Um, And second, to really tackle this big topic that, you know, 100 years later, after, you know, insulin has saved so many lives, why are people so resistant to using it? And it's something that's really baffled me for years. Um, And we've had some great conversations around it. So I'm so happy to have you guys here just to share your thoughts. But before we get started, I would love for you to introduce yourselves to our listeners. Thanks so much. So this is Kelly. I am a person living with diabetes. And, you know, we're talking here about the 100th anniversary of insulin. It made me stop and realize that I have been using insulin for nearly half that time, nearly 50 years as a person diagnosed as a child with type 1 diabetes. Back in the day, of course, it was called juvenile diabetes. Um, And I'm just really excited for us to look at all the reasons that people may be having trouble using insulin as directed. You know, you mentioned, Kirsten, that people sometimes don't use insulin as directed because of their own perceptions. But we've got a lot of societal perceptions about insulin that I think Jane and I are going to talk about. So, Jane, you next. Let's hear your introduction. All right. Well, I'm Jane. And... I am also someone who lives with diabetes and I use insulin every day. We're very similar, Kelly, in our timelines here. I've been using insulin for 46 years and a few months. So I'm just shy of that half century mark as well. And I am also uh, professionally working with people who use insulin and as a nurse and certified diabetes care and education specialist. I'm excited to be here and talk about insulin. Okay, so I did my quick math here and I added 50 and 46. So that's 96. That's almost 96 years of insulin taking between you, almost to 100. 
Interestingly, and Kelly, you sort of alluded to this already, you know, social pressure, perceptions, there's all of these things that, you know, maybe maybe come together, maybe it's not just one thing, but it's multiple things that really impact people's resistance to taking insulin as prescribed. So love to jump into this and really talk about it. What are these barriers to taking insulin? You know, there's lots of them, Kirsten, but Jane and I have kind of been talking and talking with you. And there's five that we think were really important to bring out and talk about uh, today. Those include fear of using insulin, um, perceptions. There are a lot of negative connotations tied up with insulin, social pressure, which is a biggie at whatever life stage you might be encountering needing to use insulin. Um, Then we also have the issues that are tied up with access and affordability. Insulin is a wonder drug, but as we know, it is not cheap, and that can often get in the way of someone having access um, so that they can take it daily as prescribed. And then the last one is one that we don't always talk about a lot, but is really important. We know that diabetes kind of occurs across the spectrum. We have the types, type 1, type 2, gestational, and so on. But we also know that not everybody fits perfectly into those categories, right? So sometimes there are some misdiagnoses challenges with using insulin as directed and getting access to that wonder drug. So those are the five we're going to look at today. Should we start with that first one, that that fear of using insulin? Yeah, let's start there because that's the one that I hear most often from people with diabetes. Absolutely. And, you know, I think what we also hear is that fear coming from people who don't have diabetes. You know, you, Jane, myself, we have maybe had an encounter at some point in time when somebody finds out that we have to inject or pump insulin and they get that look of horror on their face and they wrinkle up their nose and they say, I couldn't do that. I'd die if I would have to inject myself um, every day, especially multiple times a day. And then those of us who are doing it kind of roll our eyes and say, you know, you got to do what you got to do. But it is true. There are a lot of fears um, and, and misperceptions tied into something that requires a sharp needle, um, a vial, proper measurement, and sticking something into your skin to give you the medicine that you need. Now, one of the interesting things we find um, in people who are initiated to insulin, that when you get right down into the practical matter, one of the best things possible is, you know, for a diabetes care and education specialist to be able to sit with a person and actually demonstrate and observe as they inject themselves for the first time. After people do that, you hear lots of things. One of the most common is, wow, that needle was pretty small. I almost didn't feel that. It was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. Jane, do you hear comments like that when when you do demos and observe somebody giving their first injection? Definitely. Yeah, that first kind of eye-opening experience where people realize that, like you said, the needle is really small, very fine. You can hardly feel it if you can feel it at all. And something that helps a lot with children is to have the parents inject each other. And, you know, show the child that they're, first of all, they're on board, they're on their team, they're going to help them out that way. And the child watches them and sees, oh, you know, it's not hurting them. So it probably won't hurt me. I love that. You know, that happened to me way back in the day when I was a preschooler um, with my diagnosis and insulin was the one and only treatment, right? How did we do it? And I have vague memories of this um, to this day. My father 
gave uh, what must have been saline at the time injection into his thigh. I watched that and then I gave one to myself. That um, ability to share in this act that we have to do every day to also have a willing family member, you know, demonstrate that is so important. And I think it also helps the family members better understand what we're asking of people. Now, I don't know. Um, did my dad try real hard not to flinch? Did he keep a smile on his face? Probably because he had a four-year-old to encourage. But just that simple act of sharing um, that first step, I think is huge. And, you know, we've also seen a lot of improvements in the technology Insulin needles are much smaller. We know that no matter what your body shape or size, a shorter needle is almost always an appropriate way to give your insulin. And then we also have things like, you know, hidden needles or um, even injection aids. So it is a prick. It is something going under your skin. But I think most people who are experiencing it find that fear of injection is probably easily gotten over and maybe one of the least important fears or misperceptions when it comes to taking insulin. But, you know, Kelly, you talked about it and Jane mentioned too, you know, when you think about the caregivers and the family and the people around a person with diabetes and then that look on their face, that can change a perception, right? And that that's really impactful. And I, I think I heard you say perception and social pressures and some of these things that are, that are barriers to insulin. Maybe Jane, do you want to talk a little bit about that perception? Yeah, and I was going to say while we were talking about fears, and there are obviously a lot of other fears too, and education is so key to helping people work through their fears, but they really overlap very closely with perception and misperception. And, you know, I was thinking and I jotted down a note here that, you know, when people go on a pump, that that means they have bad diabetes or they have a worse case of diabetes or severe diabetes or whatever. And that's usually coming from people who aren't living with diabetes in their life. But, you know, that is their perception. So we can't necessarily classify that as a misperception. It's their perception. And so, again, education is very helpful around those things. One of the really big perceptions that people have around insulin is that it's a punishment, that they have failed, that they have done something wrong, that they are no good at this. And so we as diabetes care and education specialists have to work very hard to make sure that we start talking about insulin right from the beginning, right from the first diagnosis, whether it's someone obviously with type one, we're going to because it's a survival skill, but with, even with type two diabetes, and we need to say in the event that you need insulin down the road, that's okay. It's, it's what your body needs and here's how it works and here's what it does and here's why it's actually a good thing. And kind of take away that perception of failure or blame or shame or, or whatever. Kelly, what are your experiences with that? I think you're, you're right on there, Jane. You know, nobody really wants to take insulin, right? If you asked any of us, we would prefer not to have to take it. But there are going to be folks, like you mentioned those with type 1, who need it, need it to survive. There's going to be people with type 2 diabetes whose condition has progressed enough, whose beta cell mass has dwindled, and they just are not going to be able to survive either without some exogenous insulin. Unfortunately, it often is held over people as either a threat or this thing that we want to try to avoid at all costs. So I think it's really important for 
our healthcare providers who are listening to this to really think about, have you ever spoken or even had a, a look on your face that was you know, talking about avoiding insulin or holding it out as sort of that last resort. I think we can all step back and reflect a little bit and just really think about insulin as the life-saving, life-sustaining miracle medication that it is. Some people are going to need it and that's okay. What we do then want to think about is, is how do we help people use it safely and use it well so that they can enjoy life as they want to. Yes. And Kirsten, you mentioned social pressures, which kind of flow directly from that. And we talk to people all the time who feel pressure not to take insulin. And whether that's because their family member has had health problems or they've you know lost a limb or they ended up on dialysis. And there's this family belief that it was the insulin that caused this. So there might be pressure around that. Or I actually had a patient one time who I was working with who said, I can never take insulin. And I said, oh, why not? And and she said, because my husband won't let me. And I mean, I was really bowled over by that because she, she was serious. Her husband was not going to let her take insulin. And I guess luckily she didn't need insulin at that time, but you know, there was a lot more to unpack, so to speak, if she had needed insulin to find out what was it, what perception was it that her husband had that he thought insulin was so bad, or was it a cost issue, or was it, you know, who knows? But that was a real pressure for that woman that, you know, something in the back of her head, I can never take insulin. You know, it's really interesting. I think in our society, it's tough for people to process the point that for some of us, for some conditions, we are going to need some sort of medication for the rest of our life. That's really, you know, sort of contrary to the the medical view of illness and disease. You take medication for a certain amount of time, it cures whatever is ailing you, and you move on back to your life before you were taking that medication. We know with chronic conditions, especially with diabetes, almost everybody is going to need some level of medication, whether it's, you know, very basic metformin for type two, all the way to basal bolus insulin therapy. And for some people, you know, we have multiple medications used to manage blood glucose. So it's no surprise that people have these misperceptions who really, really hope that they can help people get off or not have to go on medication. And those thoughts come from generally very positive places. They care about people. They don't want to see them have complications. But it is something that's very real and that we need to help people figure out how to counter, how to talk about, and how to move on so that they are able to get access to the medications that they need. So you guys are really making me think that you know, when we think about pressure and stigma and perceptions, you don't really know until you ask those questions, right? As a diabetes care and education specialist, because everybody is different. Everybody comes from, with a different perspective. And unless you have those conversations, you're never really going to know why, right? That's a great point. And, you know, it's so interesting. I mean, how often do we sit there and ask someone, what do you think about insulin? It's a question that really doesn't come up very often, just in general. Now, we might ask about, oh, what's going on with these blood sugars and your dosing notes here? You know, how do you think that your carbohydrate counting and your bolus dosing is going? Very, very specific and sort of task-oriented questions. 
But do we ever ask folks about what they think? Are they grateful for insulin? You know, what do they hope for insulin in the future? I know we're all rushed for time. There aren't very many minutes in our encounters to have those types of conversations, but I think they would lead us into some very interesting territory. Part of me thinks if, if we could start each conversation with, hey, we have to celebrate. We're celebrating insulin this year. Maybe that simply that, that um, statement would put people in a different perspective to have a conversation like that. You know, and I think to carry that on, it's not just that we're celebrating this amazing drug that has been studied and refined and improved. The delivery methods have been improved in the past you know, 100 years. But I think what we're really celebrating when we think about celebrating the 100th anniversary of insulin is we are celebrating the people who are using it, who are taking it, who are living life because they do have this medication. So then let me ask you this, Kelly and Jane. So we're celebrating it, right? But what about access? Is it easy to access? And does everybody have access to insulin? Oh my goodness, this is such a big topic. It's such an important one. You know, we've been talking about things like sort of your initiation to insulin. How do you take that first shot and injection? How do you insert that first infusion set if you're using a pump? Um, And those are all those practical survival skills, thriving skills that are so important. We've got to help people understand how to prevent, how to treat hypoglycemia, for example. But access is this bigger challenge and it's a tough one. Um, So let me talk just a little bit about a, a story, an anecdote, because I think it shines a light on things that we know, such as insulin, out-of-pocket costs keep increasing, but even some of the psychological challenges with access. So when I was, oh, about 10 or so, my family had traveled out of town for a weekend soccer tournament for my younger brother. We were staying in a hotel, going to multiple games. I probably really didn't want to be there, but hey, I was there. And I remember being in the bathroom Um, of that hotel room, and I dropped my glass vial of insulin, and it fell on that tile floor, and it cracked, and insulin leaked out everywhere. Now, I don't know why, um, but at the time, I did not tell my parents that I had broken my one and only vial of insulin. I cleaned it up. um, I, you know, wadded up the glass shards into the trash can, and I went through the rest of that day as if nothing had happened. Not surprisingly, I started to feel pretty ill a few hours later, and my family ended up um, taking me home, and we had insulin in the refrigerator, and I was able to access it. Um, But I think what that story shows is just a little bit of the challenge to access. Even if people can afford insulin, their families are able to, there is still this fear. There's a lot of shame involved in the fact that For those of us taking insulin, it is a burden on our families because of cost, because of time, because of needing to have it with us when we're we're out of town. And I think those psychological aspects of access are really important for diabetes educators to talk about with their clients, their patients, and explore a little bit. My family would not have appeared um, in any screening questions to have financial problems tied with insulin we had access. But for that moment, for whatever reason, as a child, I felt fear and shame and hid the fact that for at least a few hours, I didn't have access to insulin. And I'm curious, Jane, do you have any other examples or stories about that that maybe shed some light on some of these access issues? My overarching thought is that access to insulin in terms of the cost and 
insurance coverage and all of that, which varies around the world in terms of different countries and the way things work, is really its own separate podcast. If it hasn't been done, I'm sure it will be done. I think one of the things that came up when we were talking earlier was about emergency access. And that's another important topic for people who are taking insulin. And how do you get your insulin in an emergency situation? Do you have enough insulin backed up in your refrigerator or whatever? What happens in a power outage? What happens? And for me, the one thing I think of in terms of emergency access is whenever I am on an airplane, I listen to that. I know I'm one of those geeks who actually watches the flight attendant when they do their little spiel. And I listen to that, you know, in the case of an emergency, you would leave, you leave your possessions at your feet or in the overhead and get off the plane. And I always think, but I need my insulin. And I think if somebody saw me stop and take my bag that has my insulin, they would probably yell at me and say, leave your bag and get out. And I'm thinking, but I have to have my insulin. So, you know, we really do think about those things and we we need to think about those things. And we need, as healthcare professionals, we need to teach people to think about those things and to be prepared for emergency access at all times. Absolutely. You know, I think the big thing with access is we're talking complete uninterrupted access to insulin basically every hour of the day, if you're on basal bolus, right, you're going to have three meals, maybe some snacks, you're going to need that excess. So it's true. Um, When you're on a plane, you need it. I live in a high rise apartment building, and we occasionally have fire drills, right? Usually, they're just um, safety precautions. But what do I grab as I'm grabbing my coat and my keys, I grab my little insulin pouch that's in my refrigerator. You know, another important thing, too, that you reminded me of, Jane, not only do we have to have insulin clutched in our hands, but we also have to have our hypoglycemia treatment. So those glucose tablets are also the second thing that I'm going to grab at any moment and make sure that I have access. And that's in all moments of my day, whether I'm at work, whether I'm commuting, whether I'm going out to have some fun, do something entertaining. I always, always have to have that, both the insulin and the hypo treatment. And you do as well. I love what both of you guys shared is really from your perspective as people with diabetes, um, and yet you're also professionals, right? You're advocates. You know, thinking about this access, you're right. It is a big issue. We have had a couple of podcasts about it. I would love to have more. From the diabetes care and education specialist perspective, how would you advise people to really address this access issue when you're working with somebody? That's a tough question, Kirsten. It could go in so many directions. (laughs) I think that could be a 20-minute talk right there. Um, But I I always go back to teaching, clarifying, demonstrating, giving people resources so that people are as informed as possible and equipped to manage their diabetes in the most effective way as possible. You know, I'm also reminded that this access question changes with the person's life stage, right? When you think about myself as a child, really completely dependent on my parents' ability to provision those vials of insulin and those syringes. Then I think today of my nephew, who also lives with type 1 diabetes and is off at college, and think about some of the transitions um, that he and his parents have talked about. They've really made sure that his refills have been refilled in the past. Now he's living 100 miles away and is 
needing to be more responsible for making sure that he directly can get a refill for his insulin. So I think that might just be an awareness point that even if someone has been taking insulin very successfully for a number of years, when they have a life stage transition, when they have a dwelling place transition or a change in health insurance or who their main diabetes uh, health providers are, those are inflection points at which it might be time to revisit and ask some of these basic questions about access and what the person's plan and resources are to make sure that they have interrupted access to insulin and the way to deliver it. So Kelly, that's a really great point. And you brought up what I was thinking about listening to you guys talk about access is how do you know if somebody has trouble accessing insulin? Is it something that you can ask in a visit with somebody? Absolutely. It's something to ask. Um, And I think there are various ways to ask it, but it is something that I would encourage our diabetes educators and our prescribers um, to ask and check in on. And I don't want to spend too much time here. Like we said, we could talk for hours on this one, but we do have um, resources available for people. So if anyone is listening, wants to take a deep dive into this, you can go to diabeteseducator.org forward slash affordability. And ADCES offers just a plethora of resources to kind of guide diabetes care and education specialists through this topic. Um, I heard one more big thing you guys were going to talk about here in resistance to taking insulin. And um, that was a misdiagnosis. And Jane, I think you mentioned that one. Yeah. So I would just wanted to highlight that while most people are correctly diagnosed with type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes, there is a subset of people who actually have a form of type 1 diabetes that's slowly uh, developing. And so because it comes on more slowly and it has characteristics of both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, it is often misdiagnosed as type 2 diabetes. And that is LADA or latent autoimmune diabetes in adults. And people who have LADA very often don't have to take insulin for a while. It could be six months, could even be a year. Um, What I've seen several times are people who were diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, they sometimes went off carbs altogether. They lost all sorts of weight. They were exercising like crazy and they were feeling sicker and sicker and sicker by the day. And then eventually six months to a year down the road, they end up in the hospital in diabetes related ketoacidosis or DKA and very, very sick. And then they find out that it's actually a form of type one diabetes or LADA And then what can happen is people say, oh, I just have to take insulin and I can go back to my um, health habits from before eating what I was eating before and not, you know, I don't have to exercise as much or whatever. And there becomes this very almost dysfunctional relationship with the insulin and with the diabetes, the diabetes management. And it can take a very long time for people to kind of get on board with what do I actually have? How do I actually manage it? How do I get my energy level back and feel good and get back to being a productive member of society? But the bottom line is that can be one of the reasons why people aren't taking insulin is because they actually got the wrong diagnosis. And so we can ask one simple question, and that is, did you lose weight without trying around the time of your diagnosis? If the answer is yes, 
we absolutely have to send blood for autoantibodies. And if there's any question whatsoever of what the diagnosis is, we need to send blood for autoantibodies and rule out type 1 diabetes or autoimmune diabetes. And hearing over and over again throughout this whole conversation, you know, ask questions, ask questions, ask questions. So I think that's what I'm going to walk away with this uh, from this conversation with just be open and ask questions. But Jane, really quick, how often does that misdiagnosis happen? I don't know a statistic on that. I really don't. I talk to a lot of people who've had it happen to them, but I don't have a statistic. Yeah, yeah, you're you're not the first. I mean, I've heard I hear this, you know, quite frequently, especially in research studies too. So I think one thing that's hard for people who experienced a, a misdiagnosis with diabetes is that they feel like they're the only person that it's ever happened to, because they feel very isolated. Like they're, I know all these people with type one diabetes. I know all these people with type two diabetes, and all of a sudden, I don't have what I thought I had, and I've never talked to someone like that. I think it also relates um, just to even the differences that we see when someone is diagnosed with type 1 diabetes as a child or a, a teen versus being diagnosed as an adult, which we know absolutely happens. There tends to not be quite the um, surround sound level of care. You know, in a great uh, pediatric diabetes clinic, you're going to have your doctor, nurse, diabetes educator, probably a social worker, a psychologist. There's a lot of surround sound care when people are able to access really, really gold standard care, right? You're diagnosed as an adult and maybe you're living in an area far from a city center that doesn't really have a diabetes clinic. You're not necessarily going to get all the types of care right away and early in your diagnosis um, to help understand the physical, the mental, all those sides of living with diabetes. So I think it's also maybe a warning for us to think about understanding as a diabetes educator When was the person diagnosed? What type of care did they have then and do they have now um, to help make sure that all these these needs are addressed and and the questions are asked? That makes me think, especially through this whole conversation too, like how much are we asking people with diabetes? Because you both are people with diabetes. How much are we asking people in that position to self-advocate and how hard is that? I think we've seen real advantages for folks who are in touch with peer support communities, whether those are in person or, you know, ever increasingly they are online through regular social media or through invitation only social media platforms. I think that that has been a really strong component of encouraging advocacy, of telling the stories, of of finding out that you're not the only person Um, you know, an adult living with slow onset type one and some of the challenges there. So we've seen and and research has shown us the value of connecting with these peer support communities. That said, we know that, you know, not everybody is aware of these peer support communities. Not everybody has access. And sometimes it takes a little bit of shopping around to find a community that you feel comfortable in. Um, But I think that's one way that we can help show advocacy in in action and encourage people to meet other people like them who are living with the daily tasks associated um, and the daily emotions associated with taking care of our diabetes. Yeah, I would agree that the peer support is kind of the diabetes camp for adults. And we know diabetes camp is wonderful for children with diabetes and also, you know, adults who work at the camps get a lot out of it too. I think that knowing other people who are going through the same things and having a support network is very 
helpful to people. Well, I love the way you compared that to to summer camp. That actually, I've never heard that before, Jane, and it completely makes sense to me. Um, and we've seen like the peer support groups have. I mean, they're they're just growing. I would say they're mushrooming, and they really, really are helping people really globally to tackle this. And I think what I hear you guys saying is that they bring this. It's like a power of positivity um, and empowerment to people. And that positivity to the care team, too, just creates a foundation for moving forward in a positive way. I would love just to hear a couple, you know, thoughts from you guys on calls to action for our listeners. I mean, we've gone through fear, access, perception, social pressure, misdiagnosis, really some big topics here. What would be your calls to action for our community? Just one or two from you guys. Ooh, I like this opportunity. Thank you so much, Kirsten. So I have one and it's less about diabetes educators and people using insulin, taking insulin. And this is a call to our researchers. You know, insulin is an amazing medication. It works right away. But we also know that it has some challenges. Hypoglycemia is one of those. And so my big call to action to researchers, I would really love to see more attention to glucose-responsive insulin developments, Um, an insulin that is smarter than we are about preventing and avoiding hypoglycemia while still doing its job to lower hyperglycemia. So that's on my wish list. Jane, what about you? Well, I'm going to go back to something that we've been reiterating all the way through, and that is asking people about their perceptions and their experience and their feelings we can learn so much and find direction for where to go in a visit. Just knowing, like asking someone, what's working for you? What's not working? How can I help you? I'm on your side. I'm here to collaborate with you. Let me know which direction we need to take with this. And then we can, like I said earlier, teach, clarify, demonstrate, provide people with resources. And when you ask first, then you move away from those assumptions or judgments or feelings of like, as the professional, I know the best for this person. And you really find out that the person knows the best. You just have to help them get there. I love that. That's such a person-centric, strength-based look at how we take care of our diabetes and improve. And, you know, it goes back, I think, when we look at the seven self-care behaviors One that really is so central and sort of surrounds every other behavior, whether that's eating healthy or or being active, is that one of healthy coping. How do we help bring to the fore what's on somebody's mind, what are their challenges, and work together to co-create solutions? That's why we brought you both on, from the research perspective to working with people and asking questions. And really, they both inform each other, right? So we have to ask the questions. And then on the research side, hopefully we answer them. And yet the research brings that back to the people with diabetes who continue to ask the questions. So you guys, thank you so much for coming and sharing your 96 years of taking insulin with us and your perspectives. And it's been an incredible discussion with you. And I know that our listeners are really going to appreciate this. Thank you. I've really enjoyed the conversation, Kristen and Jane. It has been a real pleasure. Yes, thank you. This is great. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Huddle. As you just heard, the reasons why someone doesn't take their insulin runs the gamut. Diabetes care and education specialists are ideally positioned to leverage their knowledge and skills to address barriers to insulin therapy. 
By taking a non-judgmental, person-centered approach, you can work with the client to develop a solution that meets their needs and brings them forward in their treatment plan. ADCES has the resources you need to aid you in this process. Just head over to diabeteseducator.org forward slash podcast to access a list of relevant resources. For more resources, education, and networking that can improve your practice and optimize outcomes for your clients, consider joining ADCES. Visit diabeteseducator.org forward slash join to learn more about the full benefits of membership. The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and may not be appropriate or applicable for your individual circumstances. This podcast does not provide medical or professional advice and is not a substitute for consultation with a healthcare professional. Please consult your healthcare professional for any health-related questions.